All right, Jesse, last week was an absolute red flag in a thon. What is the story this week? Today, we are finally throwing it on back with a yield love murder. We will be talking about Marianne Cotton, the UK's first female serial killer, who is believed to have murdered a whopping 21 people, including her husbands, her children, and even her dear old mum. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is a yield love murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about bad pickup lines, worst marriage crimes, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. Oh, yes. And remember to join the Facebook group. Well, you're at it if you're on Facebook. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. And I want to say hello to everybody who's coming in new because I know we had some new listeners come in last week. New listeners, tons of new patrons, which is where I was going next. If you are (laughs) listening, you've binged, you're ready for some more content, you can sign up on our Patreon at patreon.com slash lovemurderpod. And you can learn all about the different tiers of support, but most importantly, our bonus episodes. Yeah, that's definitely the most important because you get two per month and one is hosted by our lovely Andrea. That's me. (laughs) That's you. Okay, but first, let's definitely thank all of those beautiful new patrons. Yeah, that was pretty overwhelming, guys. I was abroad and I was seeing all of them come in. It was like bing, 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 bing. So major welcome to Amy A, Tamara A, and Angela P. Becca B, Stephanie H, and Danielle L. Bethany P, Ebony L, and Steph H, Michelle N, Laura M, and Jana S, Zoe M, Tara Lynn L, and Terry Ann B, Leah K, Caroline A, and Tina R, Amy M, Amanda R, and Lisa P, Jennifer W, Velvet H, and Janet F, Sarah S, Carrie G, and Nicole K, and Herdis E, Dara J, and Alana J. Wow, that is overwhelming. Thank you, everyone. Overwhelming in the best way possible, you mean. It warms the cockles of my (laughs) cold, dead heart. Absolutely. And speaking of cold, dead hearts, it has been a gosh darn long time since we did a yield. And this lady is something else. Let's totally get back into that frigid bitch's mind. (laughs) All right. You were talking about cold hearts, you know? I was, yes. It's 120 degrees where I am right now, so anything cold just sounds so nice. air conditioning off. (laughs) Oh my God, it's disgusting. Oh my God. Andy has been traveling around the world, being laid over, stuck in Atlanta. Driving six hours today. Yep. You're in South Carolina now, sweltering because she has to turn off the air conditioning so we don't pick up on it for the recording. Yep. You're welcome, everyone. (laughs) I love you. (laughs) Okay. So 
luckily for you, Andy, while you're so exhausted, and for all of you out there who maybe you're waking up in the morning and it's really early and you don't want to deal with today, we can start your day with a bang. Not only is Marianne Cotton considered the UK's first female serial killer, she is still among the country's most prolific. Accused of murdering 21 men, women, and children during a nearly decade-long reign of terror. So we're talking three out of four husbands, 11 out of 13 of her children, a couple lovers, her stepchildren, and then her own mother. Savage. Yeah, ain't nobody was safe around the Dark Angel. And her method of killing was deeply British. She would serve her poison in a nice cuppa. Oh, we're giving this all away at the beginning. This is not a whodunit. It's a maybe why done it. And more like, uh, did she kill actually all of these 21 people? Which, Andy, you and I will discuss as we go through victim by victim. Were they victims of Marianne Cotton or were they victims of just living in 19th century England in some poor conditions? Yeah, she's getting a lot of credit where credit may not be deserved. Exactly. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So yeah, we're giving it away at the up top, but we will go through and discuss whether we really think she killed this many people or any people at all. Some scholars now believe that Marianne may not have been guilty of all 21 murders or not guilty at all, instead railroaded by a corrupt justice system that sought to make an example of Marianne a woman in Victorian England who took lovers, who got pregnant out of wedlock, married multiple times, and most definitely, in the very least, committed bigamy. But I think it was the murdering of her own children that might have struck a chord with the public who <laughs> didn't especially like Ms. Cotton. You think? Yes. Well, there may have been value sets and moral rules that have changed since Victorian England. It's still pretty frowned on to murder your partner's children, friends, and mother. So hide your kids, hide your wife, hide your bad jokes from a decade ago, because it's time to talk about Marianne freaking Cotton. You guys remember that? Remember that that one? Uh, hide your kids, hide your wife. How can anyone forget? How but also, like, can we nickname her Mac for this episode? Let's call her Mac. The Big Mac. Well, before she was Mac, she was Mar. Marianne Robson was born on Halloween, 1832. Oh, creepy. That's right. October 31st, 1832. Her parents were 20-year-old minor Michael Robson and his 19-year-old wife, Margaret. And the two of them had only been married about three months at the time of her birth. So you can do the math and figure out that they probably had to tie the knot to legitimize the wee little Hallow's Eve baby. Yeah, I'd say. Yes. Much can be made out of Marianne's auspicious birth date as well as her pedigree due to her later crimes. So Robson is a surname associated with the Border Reavers. The Border Reavers were, and I am not a British history buff, so forgive me if I'm wrong, <laughs> uh, but how they were characterized on one of the shows that I watched. This was a British crime show called Absolute Crime. You can find it on YouTube. They were kind of characterized to be these murderous plunderers who attacked villages along the border of England and Scotland from the 13th into the early 17th century. Wow. 
they kind of seemed like these like wily land pirates, like on one end of the spectrum and on the other end, just like terrifying murder clans. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So you can guess which lineage may have produced our Mac over here. So I'm getting all of this scrumptious historical information from a book called Marianne Cotton, Dark Angel by Martin Connolly. But I also found a great article by leading British criminologist and professor David Wilson. And I watched that show I told you about absolute crime on YouTube. Any additional sources will be in the show notes. So back to Marianne. So she was raised strictly Methodist in a small mining town in the county Durham. By all accounts, she was actually considered a very intelligent, good girl with good behavior and a, quote, clean and tidy appearance. Hmm. When Marianne was three, the couple had another child. I think they had lost a baby in between, but they successfully had a son when she was three. And money was very, very tight for this family. It was an extremely meager existence. Okay. And it got even worse when tragedy struck in February of 1842. And when Marianne was nine years old, her father was sinking a mine shaft when he fell 300 feet and his body was crushed beneath falling debris. No. Yeah. So poor Michael's battered and broken body was returned from the mining company in a burlap sack that read property of the South Hatton Coal Company. And they basically just dropped it off on Marianne's family's doorstep. What? In a burlap sack. That's horrifying. I mean, it's so horrifying. But then to make it even worse was that the coal company owned the cottage that they lived in because they would allow them to live in these tiny little cottages well the father, yep, provider, yep, the family yep, of was risking his life down in the mines. Yep. And they're like, here he is in a burlap sack. We'll give you five days to get out. And they evicted her. Yeah, that's, I mean, just like ruthless. Ruthless. I feel like there should be some sort of like family severance or like support while you're trying to grapple with the fact that your husband and father of your children is dead. I do believe they may have gotten a small life insurance okay. settlement. Now, this was an interesting time because this was actually the first time that common people could buy life insurance policies. It was like around this time and around the time that I believe Marianne's father was killed. Yeah, but considering that job description, like they should yes. all be. And it wasn't a lot though. I think it covered maybe like half a year's salary or something. So she Crazy. doesn't have a lot of time to get back on her feet with two little kids they were already struggling to feed. Yep. So she was destitute. This is Marianne's mother, but she was not without charm. She ended up quickly remarrying another coal miner named George Stott. And this guy was a lot like Marianne's father, at least on paper. It sounds like they were both Methodist. They were both coal miners. But Marianne reportedly loathed her new stepfather and she moved out of the house just as soon as she possibly could because this was all happening very sudden for her. And at 10 years old, 9, 10, she's not going to understand that, like, her mother is marrying somebody to survive. No, 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 of course not. She's going to feel like her mom got remarried within six months, which, if you think about it, is when the money was running out. And it just felt like a lot to her. So at 16, she got the opportunity to become a nanny. It was like a nurse. Like, that's what they called it in the U.K., 
to the five children of a higher up, like a manager at the same coal company where her father had died. Hmm. Uh-huh. So some people have made some inferences about her time working as a nanny for these two years, which at that time all of the kids went off to boarding school. One is that this is where she picked up a hatred of children that will result in her murdering the majority of her own children later on and her stepchildren. But I do not know if this is true because from newspaper reports of the time, an old employer, the mother of the children that she was nannying at this time, said that she did a great job with the kids and that none of the kids were ever ill or injured or complained about Marianne whatsoever. What did she do to have them never be ill? (laughs) I know. I got to know her tricks. I think they mean that they didn't die of arsenic poisoning. Or TB. Yeah. She's like, look, they didn't die of like gastric fever or anything else. So she did a pretty darn good job while she was here. The other thing that some people have said is that it seems like this was her first chance at seeing how the other half lived. And there was something greedy or avaricious about her seeing this and being like, I want this life and how do I get it? And I'll get it no matter what. But I kind of thought it was maybe something else. Like I thought like, yes, of course, she's seeing these children who are being taken care of. They're getting to go to doctors. (laughs) They're getting to have fine clothes. The lady of the house has beautiful clothing and good furniture and beautiful home goods. There's no struggle. It's so far removed from her experience. And I don't necessarily think it was like this greedy thing, like, oh, I want what they have and I'm going to take it. But I definitely think that there had to be some resentment. Yeah. Or like you were saying, like seeing how the other half lives. Like, I feel like once you're kind of in that environment, it's hard to go back. Yeah. I think, so I think it's like twofold. I think it's like, absolutely, it's hard to go back. I think also like, Dealing with the fact, and I don't know if she ever really felt like this. It just, I was kind of thinking of like how I would feel is that this guy is making all of this money that he can provide for his family in this beautiful home in this way. They apparently had like six live-in staff too. And so the fact that this guy was doing it while not working in the mines, but like being a manager's manager, manager. And so she's like, guys like my dad are dying doing the actual dangerous, hard labor. Meanwhile, we were living in squalor and this guy isn't actually ever even getting his hands dirty and look at this beautiful house. So I think it was a little bit of everything. It was like, I deserve it. I want it. I'm going to figure out how to get it. And like also just the world is unfair. She's only 16 years old and she's like, the world is like deeply unfair. It's early realization. It's a very early realization. I guess like back then, though, you're like 70 when you're 16. (laughs) You are. I'm surprised she isn't married yet, which she's going to get married soon. But yeah, it's just there's little opportunity in Marianne's station, like how the class system was and where she was born and her education level. There's just no place for advancement. She was going to be a domestic servant or if she was lucky enough to end up with a guy that could allow her to be home with their children, it was like. The options were for her domestic servant or popping out babies until she dies or her fertility does. Have fun. (laughs) What a time to be alive. The good old days. If you can avoid dysentery and tuberculosis as well. (laughs) Well, there was this woman on the criminal show, the UK show I watched, that she was like, yeah, basically like 
at 15 or 16, you start having babies. And then for like 25 years, depending on like if you are fertile all the way up to like 40, 41, which some women are and were, she was like, for 25 years, you could be just like in a constant state of pregnancy, breastfeeding, postpartum, and then the cycle just starts right up while you're taking care of all those kids forever. <laughs> and I was Minus like, what? postpartum recognition didn't even exist. No, but like they're feeling those things, but there's no words about it. And that's if you're lucky enough that your children live. So then you're dealing with the fact that there's constantly not enough food and they're constantly ill. And at this time in life, one out of five children did not even make it till their first birthday. It's crazy. Yeah. So there was little opportunity in Marianne's life. And she found that while she wasn't the best domestic servant, although she apparently was a fine nanny, she had a talent. She did have a talent. She was good at getting men to marry her. Marianne wasn't exactly a looker, but she was described as pleasant looking and pretty in her younger years. I love it when, they, when they're like, she's fair to look at. It doesn't bother me <laughs> to look at her. Like, like, thank you. Well, from this angle, she's only moderately horsey. So I feel like this is always the case in the yields. I was like, ah, what any woman wants to be called pleasant looking. She's pleasant enough. She keeps a tidy appearance, which was another compliment that she received. I don't know if that's a compliment. No. As we shall see throughout the course of this episode, Girl could close a deal, though, with a guy. She could get it done. At the age of 19, Marianne married a 26-year-old named William Mowbray. And we know that it seemed like Marianne's mother and stepfather did not approve of this marriage because the couple did not have a church wedding. And it was rumored that Marianne was pregnant before the elopement. Clutching my pearls. <laughs> Furthermore, she lied on the wedding license saying that she was 21 instead of her actual age of 19 because at under 21, she would have needed parental approval to get married. Wow. Yeah. One of the articles I read was like, it looks like Marianne was really good at lying right away. And I was like, I don't know. I'm pretty sure a lot of those girls did. There's like even another person in this story that also wanted to get married under 21 to somebody that their parents didn't approve of. And yeah, she also Getting married lied. under 21 isn't an anomaly during this time. No, it was just more that you had to have your parents' approval because yeah, I think they had that to do the deal. There was still some like land. puritanical, like Victorian England thing that like your parents had to sell you off first. You couldn't sell yourself off. They no. had to do it. Well, Marianne and her new husband also took off. So this is why they think that maybe her mom and stepdad weren't super excited about this because they also like left town right after getting married. So they're like, bye. And they ended up living a nomadic lifestyle all across Southern England. And it seems like William did his best to provide for his family. He worked a ton of different jobs. There are records of his employment throughout this time. And here's the thing we don't know what happened. They were rumored to have four or maybe even five children during this first five-year period of their marriage. Busy. Yes, but we don't really know if this is true. We only know that they may have had four or five children in this early era because Marianne alludes to these children dying later on. Okay, but like doesn't have proof. She's just alluding to it. 
she's saying, I had a really hard life. My first like four or five kids died. And then apparently the rest of them did as well. But there's no record and they don't know if it's because they were living a rather transient life at that point. What do you have to say about transient life? <laughs> Nothing. That's just They were like just moving around. And so maybe they just couldn't find these. I'd imagine records. that would be really hard for kids like health during that time. Yes. And I'm, I don't think they were staying in the best of establishments. And there's a lot of people crowded into these places. But given that Marianne had a propensity for killing her kids later on, it is heavily believed that she may have murdered these children as well. Also, given the fact that she is one real fertile myrtle, it would also make sense that she had at least a few kids during this first five-year period of their marriage. Yeah. And then, like, poof, gone. Yes. It's also totally possible that they could have died of natural causes. Like I said, one of five kids died before they turned one. So alternatively, maybe the toll of having four children die when she's only in her early 20s and away from home and doesn't have a support structure could have also driven her to madness and her later terrible acts. I mean, it all tracks. It's all possible. I also wonder if maybe she was having some postpartum health issues. You think? If she's popping out one kid every year? Yeah. You don't even have time to, like, recover. This doesn't come up at all in these discussions, like, when all of her children die. And granted, they all die at different intervals. It's not like they all die as babies. But still, it might have something to do with that. I don't know. I was just like, you know, let's just throw that out there that this could have been a problem. Yeah, I mean, like, it happened this year with our complete knowledge of postpartum and help with it. You know what I mean? Like, can you imagine back then? No. So what we do know is that Marianne and William Mowbray moved to Cornwall in late 1855. And on June 23rd, Marianne gave birth to their first recorded child, a daughter they named Margaret Jane. About a year and a half later, daughter Isabella joined the family. But sadly, she would not have a big sister for long because Margaret Jane passed away in 1860 at the age of four. Oh. But don't worry, little Isabella. You're about to get a new little sister. And she is also named Margaret. Mm. Now, <laughs> you're... Big sister is your little sister. Both of them are named Margaret. Unfortunately, Margaret II also died when she was three and a half. Well, then a baby boy named John Robert joined the family after Wait, 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 wait. Let me guess. But not for long. Sadly, you are correct, Andy. Okay, who is, does no one know what's going on here? Like, is no one keeping track of this or checking in? Like, where's the husband? What is happening? I don't know what the husband was thinking, but don't worry. He's not going to be around oh my for God. long either. In case he was starting to get wise after maybe eight or nine of their children have passed away. So let's say she did have four or five kids earlier that all died. And now she's had three more children who have died. So that's like seven out of nine not doing so great. All with the same mister? All with the same mister. I feel like you would be a little in attuned to what is going on, wouldn't you? Well, he wasn't around for all of it because William did get a job as, I forget what exactly the position was, but it was something that he worked on a boat at sea. So he might have been gone for a few months at a time. So he didn't know what the heck was going on in his home. 
And there's even rumors that maybe some of the latter children might not have been his because she also likes to get around. That makes more sense to me. Yeah, because it seems like it was like very fortuitously timed, these babies, and real cutting it close when he was actually home from the time on the boat. But yeah, even from like 19th century standards here, that's a lot of dead kids. That's not one out of five. That's like seven out of eight. These are bad odds. Well, I think he might have been like, maybe I need to stay home more because he ended up coming home from sea and deciding to run a pub instead, probably to keep an eye on Marianne and what was going on with all of his dead children and rumors that all the kids weren't necessarily his. But then he got ill and passed away. Okay. Well, what did he get ill from? All of the kids and William passed away from distress of the stomach, gastric fever. That. Sounds like a little bit of poisoning. We're going to get into his death certificate. It says something else, but this has been widely debated as well because I read two or three different sources that said like what he actually died from. But in any case, Marianne received 35 pounds from a life insurance company and she did receive smaller amounts for each of the children that had passed away. So all in all, again, I think this covered somewhere between six to eight months of a laborer's salary. But suddenly this is like, you know, I got a good chunk of change and no husband and no dependents. Now, seven-year-old Isabella survived the absolute decimation of the rest of her family. And Marianne actually gave Isabella to her mother and stepfather to raise. And then she skipped town. Huh. Yeah, so Isabel is a survivor. She's living with grandma right now. So she's like footloose and fancy free. Now, why, like you're saying, Andy, was no one looking at this? Why wasn't this raising alarm bells? Well, author Michael Connolly wrote, it may be that all of the Mowbray deaths were simply a reflection of the severe Victorian living conditions of the poor. It has to be borne in mind that the 1800s saw epidemics of influenza, typhus, typhoid, smallpox, and cholera. Lice, mice, and rats were very common, and they were carriers of all sorts of diseases. Housing was very poor for those at the lower end of society with terrible sanitary conditions. Both adult and infant deaths were very common, with families experiencing multiple deaths over short periods. So perhaps the Mowbray deaths would not have seemed out of place. Okay, I like these excuses for people who should be concerned for they should be concerned. children's well-beings. I also think if everyone is suffering around you, if everyone's having a hard time, it's kind of like, I don't care. Like, I don't have time to care about your family. My no, whole family yeah. is suffering too. Everyone's trying to survive. It makes yes. sense. Yeah. It's just like, if they all are having distress of the stomach, can that all be from mice? Like, Well, if they're all dying the same way, then... You could say that, like, well, the thing that makes doesn't make any sense is that they died at different intervals. Like, yeah, no, it's not. You like know, they an all epidemic got, like, had a, a swept plague. through the, the, yeah, slept through the whole family. They all died at once. That's one thing. So the author also said that husband number one's death was recorded as typhus, which has quite a bit in common with arsenic poisoning, but also includes a very distinct rash. And so this author, Martin Connolly, is a little bit more on the maybe she didn't kill all these people track versus like David Wilson is like, she's a ruthless killer. She killed them all. So there's varying 
opinions about all of this. So I feel like Martin Connolly was kind of trying to say like, oh, she probably didn't do this one. She probably didn't do this one. He's like, look, yes, Typhus has all of the hallmarks of arsenic poisoning. And that's what was on his death certificate. However, it also has this distinctive rash. And he's like, I don't think a doctor would have missed that rash. And I'm like, dude, let's not give these doctors in the 1800s too much credit because they were currently using leeches on people left and right. So I'm like, I don't think we want to be like, oh, they really spent the time to look at this man's body. And they were like, oh, it has or does not have a distinctive rash. They were just like, oh, looks like typhus. Like, let me get out of here, you know? Yeah. Weren't they also like doing public examinations on people? Well, we get to an autopsy later on and they literally perform it in a kitchen with like a kitchen knife. Yes, and the children's death certificate said that they died of gastric fever, which pretty much sounds like it presents almost exactly like arsenic poisoning as well. And also, just so you guys know, at this time, you could get arsenic anywhere. It was like everywhere. You could get it at the like corner store. It was in your wallpaper. It was in these like fashionable green socks. Like people were getting like rashes because they wore these like fancy green socks that were made out of like arsenic. What? Yes. I was like doing some Googling about arsenic during this time period. There's all these people that were like, well, it could have been anything because a baby died from licking the wallpaper because there was like this special color green that was made from some compound of arsenic. And so they were like, a baby died from licking wallpaper and that there was like these guys who wore these special green socks that were getting these horrible rashes and getting really ill and somebody died from too much sock wearage apparently. Oh my God. This is like if she had had a really good defense attorney later on, they'd be like, there's arsenic everywhere. It obviously wasn't her. She can't help it. She's got very fashionable walls. (laughs) Fashionable walls and feet. Yes, she does. So as of summer of 1865, we've got a victim count of possibly eight children and one husband. So that is nine loved ones. And we are only on husband one of four. Wow. Yeah, she came out of the gate charging. So another possible motivation for the murders of family number one was that Marianne had a lover at this time that she was quite fond of. And the timeline of their romance is very tricky. It was a man by the name of Joseph Natras. And it has been said that maybe Marianne had cleared the field to be with Joseph unencumbered. No husband, no kids. She had even given her parents custody of her surviving daughter. But We do not know if this relationship worked out because she married again very quickly. She actually married again within eight months of husband number one's death. And it was not to her lover whom she had been with uh, before husband number one died. (laughs) She remarried this guy, George Ward, whom Marianne had met while working as a fever nurse at an infirmary. So poor George was already ill when Marianne came upon him. Ooh. Yeah. So she was taking care of him. She came upon him. Yeah. I think this might have just been more work for her and less romance. I think she was still living with the lover guy and she was like going to the infirmary and she's like, yeah, this one's not going to survive. So I should marry him. Wow. Okay. And we'll just keep the romance here. So George was suffering from constant nosebleeds fatigue and weakness and Marianne's job and this is how they met 
was to attach 12 leeches to George's body daily. Yeah, once again, would not have done well during this time. If you've been looking for a way to supercharge your daily focus and mental clarity, then you'll love today's sponsor, Cognitive Switch by Juvenescence. You guys can probably imagine our schedules over here are pretty demanding between little kids producing podcasts, trying to stay in shape, Andy's million other companies, an insane travel schedule. Things are pretty busy for us. Given that, finding ways to get an extra boost in focus and mental clarity without just absolutely mainlining coffee is a total game changer. Yes, it is. Cognitive Switch is a really amazing product for your brain that works in a unique way. Our brains usually get most of their energy from glucose, but they also thrive on ketones. Ketones are a highly efficient fuel source because they're easy to break down and produce a high amount of energy when used by cells. Cognitive Switch's formula gives your body the building blocks to create its own ketones, the alternate and efficient fuel source your brain already loves, which is what makes that boost in your mental performance happen. I've been using Cognitive Switch for a few weeks now, and I have been really blown away so far. I can definitely feel it helping, especially with my focus and concentration. And what really helps for me is I use the little bottles. I love the taste of it. And I take half in the morning with breakfast just to get my day started. And then half like right after lunch so that I can get over that slump and power through the scripts for you guys. The other thing about it, honestly, is that it tastes good. Ketones are pretty notorious for being bitter, but the scientists at the healthy aging company, Juvenescence, has developed a formula that has all the same effectiveness while tasting more like a dessert than a healthy drink. There's also an awesome flavorless powder version that you can mix into your favorite drinks as well. Yeah, I love the tropical flavor that I have right now. I have the flavorless powder version, but I have to admit drinking the drink is kind of like a little dessert. Cognitive Switch is clinically proven to get you into brain-boosting ketosis in just 30 minutes. It contains no sugar, no artificial sweeteners, no artificial colors or flavors. It is stimulant-free and it has a low glycemic index. Here's the exciting part. Cognitive Switch just launched. And for a limited time, our listeners can enjoy a special offer. Visit juvelabs.com lovemurder. That's J-U-V-L-A-B-S dot com slash lovemurder to get 20% off your order. Don't miss out on this opportunity to start your journey towards enhanced mental performance. Remember, by adding ketones to your routine with Cognitive Switch, you're doing something extra to support your brain. Unlock your brain's potential and experience the power of Cognitive Switch. Thanks again to Cognitive Switch and Juvenescence for sponsoring today's episode. And now, back to the show. Could you imagine the rom-com moment here? It's like they're just looking over the like slimy jar of leeches and she's getting their little tiny little leech teeth all attached. And then, oh, you know, they get nice and fat with all the blood and then she has to come and like pick them off him. Literally making me physically ill thinking about it. Yes, it's so romantic. Which also, if you think about this, it's not great. Like he is suffering from loss of a lot of blood with the constant nosebleeds is why he has like feeling lightness of his head. And they're like, The answer is to get more blood out. We need more blood out of your body. (laughs) Give them the leeches. Yes. Oh, my God. So much blood. So the thing that's interesting about husband number two is that he wasn't 
very healthy, obviously, when they <laughs> he met. died instantly. <laughs> but like he had weird side effects from dying that had nothing to do with why he was actually there in the first place, which was like paralyzed hands, which can be a side effect of arsenic poisoning. Yeah, this is where she starts messing up. Yes. And at this infirmary, there's lots and lots of arsenic available for Marianne to just grab willy-nilly at her own desire. And she had full run of all the medications here. I read that they're looking into, I think as late as 1970, they still used some compound of arsenic to aid chemo treatments in wow. cancer patients. And they're actually looking, I was like looking at a study that said they're considering bringing some format of an arsenicoid or something, forgive me, science people, back into potentially using it to treat certain cancers. And it was effective at this time in the world of treating syphilis. Wow. Because I was like, why would they have so much arsenic just lying around at this hospital? And apparently it was used to treat syphilis. So that was its number one thing. But it was also Which in a face cream probably and stuff. raging at the time. Oh, God, so much syphilis. Just <laughs> everywhere. Just dicks falling off with syphilis. You know they always have a cure when it has to do with your dick. Yeah, the cure was arsenic. <laughs> well, the marriage only lasted about two months. Shocker. And then poor George, husband number two, was dead. And she completely doesn't talk about this marriage at all. It's like it never existed. I don't even know if the poor guy ever got laid. Like, I don't even think they consummated the relationship. But she did get an inheritance as well as some life insurance money from this marriage, which makes me think that even though people were like, oh, she married number two, so her lover had to be out of the picture. I just like think that he probably was still actively in the picture. The husband lived at the infirmary. So Joseph, the lover might not have even known. Like she's just going to work and coming home because her husband's too sick to come home with her. So she's like, just going to work, honey, you know, and work is killing a poor, innocent man who was sick and was, oh, just brutalized by the medical system of the time. Yeah. Think about how much his, his family could sue for in these days. It's like, not only did you attach 12 leeches to him daily, which is the opposite of what he needed, which was a blood transfusion. You also introduced <laughs> this woman that definitely murdered him with arsenic from your establishment. <laughs> I'd say it's a pretty open and shut case. It sounds like that family should get a lot of money. <laughs> but yeah, so I don't know what was going on with Joseph Natras at this point, but it's really interesting because they have tracked census records. And they know that starting back when she was married to William Mowbray, this guy did not have the same address as her as always, but he always lived like right near her for years. Yeah. Like in her garage. <laughs> well, <laughs> like and later on when we get to like husband number four, he does eventually move in as a lodger. He's always around this guy. So October 1866, we have got a death toll of 10 currently. And Marianne left the job at the infirmary right after George died, which also seems pretty suspect. Convenient timing, Mary. Yes, that she would have to leave right after George died. So around the time that George died, a man named James Robinson was also facing personal tragedy. His beloved wife died, and he was left with five children, including a nine-month-old baby named John. So he advertised for a housekeeper, and who do you think got the job? 
He got a little bit more than what he was asking for, huh? Oh, yeah, he did. <laughs> Marianne Mowbray Ward, even though she never used her second husband's name, got the job, but of course, and she went full nanny, as in Fran Drescher nanny on this household. And I do not mean heartwarming antics performed in chic outfits while laughing like a dolphin. I mean that she started getting it on with the man of the house pretty quickly. In James' defense, he was in a state of grief. His wife of 11 years had just died. And then literally one day after Marianne moved in, the nine-month-old baby passed away. Wow. Reportedly, this baby was already sick. However, if it's possible that she did this, that's very, very quick work. But there's some doubts. This is one that's one of the questionable murders. Like, that would have been have, have to be very quick work. Yeah, but how much arsenic do you have to give to a baby to kill it? Probably not as much as you'd have to give a full No, like man. one kid literally licked wallpaper and died. That's also a very good callback, Andy. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> You're really listening. I love your active <laughs> listening skills. I wonder if anyone licked a sock. It'd be weird for sure. Like, I don't know if I would admit it. Like, I'd rather be like, oh, they licked the wallpaper. I mean, foot fetishists were probably just passing out left and right. Seriously. It's like, ooh, take off those sexy green stockings and let me have at those little peggies. Oh, they're worried about the children licking the wallpaper. No one is thinking about the foot fetishists. Yeah. And they existed, guys. (laughs) Oh, it's all existed forever. (laughs) If there's a thing that people can want and put inside their bodies, it's been done. I'm just saying, you don't even know if that's like how she could be killing all these people is like she could literally be turning them into foot fetish people and then like be wearing the socks all day. She could be. Yep. I mean, we heard that she was putting it in their tea. Oh, okay. Like she was like giving them a cuppa. I feel like that's more rude. Well, because later on there's some more, (laughs) it's really rude in in British culture, like to do that. It's such like a cornerstone. (laughs) Would you like a glass of tea? Yeah, of course I'd like a glass of tea, but like not (laughs) with arsenic. Yeah. Well, also, because later on, so James Robinson, this guy, we're going to get into all this. James Robinson had a really good job as a shipwright, and he had a pretty nice household. So this was like, I mean, if he can afford to be hiring housekeepers and other staff, this is not as nice as the one she was the nanny in, but this is pretty close as far as like what she can get her hands on in this situation. So she got her hooks into him right away. James reportedly found Marianne attractive and clean. Those were the words that he used. And then soon indispensable. We still don't know exactly how Marianne got her men, but James was soon wooed and it was said that they were a secret item pretty quickly. They were potentially planning on getting married as early as March of the next year. So we are talking about like Maybe three and a half months after she came to work for him, they're already talking about getting married. Wow. I mean, it's not like shocking to me for some reason. Yeah, he's lonely. She's taking care of his kids. Well, except for the one that she like may have murdered. Except for the baby that she may have murdered. Yes. So, well, she's on a good track with this James Robinson. And the only obstacle in her way was that he had three sisters who absolutely hated her. Oh, Yeah, but I don't think they accepted any tea from her because they lived. Okay. (laughs) They're like, nah, bitch. Yeah, they're like, no, pass. I'm not going to drink anything you handed me. Nope, nope, nope. But I think it's one of his sisters, too, that notices later that, like, every time she, like, attends to the children, they start getting sick. But anyway, 
So three and a half months in, they're talking about marriage. Things are going great for Marianne. And she gets word that her mom's not feeling well. And her mom's like, I need you to come home. I need you to take care of me because I know that you were trained as a nurse when she was the fever nurse with George Ward. And I need help. And I also, she can't be taking care of Isabella when she's sick. She's like, hold my position for me, James Robinson, because we're in love and we're going to be together. But I have to like go attend to my mom. But I'll be back really quickly. Promise. Okay. And so she went home to take care of her mother. And within nine days, her mother was dead. Wow. So the Northern Echo, which is a newspaper of the time, said that it was suspicious that the older woman was able to sit up and speak and was doing pretty well on the day that Marianne arrived, according to her neighbors and friends and husband. But then only nine days later, she was dead. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty sus. Maybe she was like, hey, you're really like getting in the way of my love story over here, mom. And you got to like pick it up. Cool it. Yeah. You're and ruining like, cool my it, chance. I mean, here's some tea. Drink up. I hope you feel better. And so this is what a lot of people thought. They're like, oh, she definitely murdered her mother because it was going to get in her way of marrying the man she wanted to marry. But on the other side, Martin Connolly's like, yeah, but she was already sick. And also would this really help her out by killing her mother? Because her mother was watching her child and wouldn't having now, I think Isabella was like eight or nine at this point, having that child like come with her and having to go back to the household, wouldn't that be a huge freaking buzzkill too? Yeah, but maybe not as much if she's taking care of his kids too. Yeah, and that... At some point, if she's, like, the only one taking care of all the kids and, like, taking care of the house and stuff, if she's gone for more than nine days, he's going to have to get a replacement, and who knows what she's going to look like. Yeah, and if they moved that fast that they were already talking about marriage in three months, like... You don't want to get another woman up in there. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Yep. So the Northern Echo also reported that, quote, Marianne left the house where her mother had died previously, stripping it of all she could lay her hands on, laden... <laughs> with spoils and bringing her daughter with her she returned to robinson's house wow andy there are so many people out there working so hard every day but still finding themselves with money challenges simply because of the way that paychecks are distributed it is so true life doesn't happen bi-weekly so why should payday the money you earn can be in your hands today with earnin Earnin is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. Andy, you know I'm such a fan of products that give people more control and agency over their own lives. 100%. Earnin is a tool for people to be more self-sufficient without falling into debt traps. Make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability, security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in Love Murder under podcasts when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Love Murder under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, daily max and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. I feel like Martin Connolly's a little bit of an apologist for her. He's like, I mean, really, she mostly took linens. Like, it's not that bad, guys. <laughs> yeah, let's not. 
let her off the hook for killing yeah. 27 children. No. So she did, in fact, return to the Robinson family. So now Isabel is now with her with them. And within five months of their return, not only was sweet surviving Isabella dead, but so were two of James's children. Six-year-old James Jr. and eight-year-old Elizabeth. James Jr. died on April 20th. Elizabeth died on April 26th. And Isabella died on April 30th, all of the year 1867. Now this poor man only has two of his surviving children and all of Marianne's biological children are dead at this point. Wow. And... James's sisters said that all of the children, because they had been like helping out with the kids while she was gone and everything and like staying in touch and keeping an eye on everything. They said that all of the children were reportedly healthy, completely healthy until only days before they died, when they very suddenly fell ill and died. Ugh. A newspaper reported the children rolled about on the bed, foamed at the mouth and retched and writhed in fits. Oh, no. The cause of death, gastric fever. A likely story. I thought she was a fever nurse, though. Not a very good one, clearly. Maybe she didn't have her store of leeches. I would call this one plus three likely murders here. So we're up to 15 murders if you count the questionable ones. Nine kids, three stepkids, two husbands, and one mother. Wow. So you'd think that James Robinson would be running for the hills by now. But no. Instead of casting Marianne and her dark rain cloud of murder death away, he married her. Wow. Marianne wed her third husband, James, on August 11th, 1867, exactly 156 years ago today. Wow. James had three sisters, who, like I said, loads Marianne, and they had very much tried to get him not to marry her. But James was an honorable man who was going to do the right thing. At the time of their wedding, Marianne was five months pregnant. So it seems based on the math that she had likely conceived right before she went away to help or slash kill her mother and likely knew about it or at least that she had would have noticed she missed her period by the time that she decided to clear the kids' bedrooms out in the Robinson home. Ooh, eek. Baby Margaret Isabella Robinson was born November 29th, 1867. And sadly, the wee little soul unfortunately went the way of both Margarets before her. She's picking up the pace, though, because this little Margaret died just one day shy of her three-month anniversary on the earth. So she was only Jeez. three months old. The death certificate said that the baby had died of convulsions, but it could not be certified because a doctor had arrived at the house after the baby was dead. So he said that he had not treated the baby and he had not been there at the moment of death. So he could not certify the death certificate saying that that was definitely what it was. So they're just basing this death certificate off of completely what Marianne is saying, believing her 100% here. At the time of her 10th baby's death, Marianne was already pregnant with the couple's second child. A baby boy named George was born during that same year. And? By the time little George was born, things were not going so great for the Robinson marriage. All of the neighbors were gossiping that they believed that Marianne maybe was poisoning the children. Oh my God, maybe. 
Maybe. These nosy neighbors, they're doing the job that you wanted them to do, Andy, when you were saying, is no one noticing this with the first family? I always love a nosy neighbor. Yes, they always solve the crimes. Be nosy. Be nosy out there, everyone. So James did his best to combat the rumors and stand by his wife, but it was pretty hard to call her a loyal wife and upstanding mother when she was stealing from him. James eventually found out that Marianne had not been paying the bills. So he had, when they officially got married, she was kind of like, hey, dude, like you're so busy and you got so much going on. Why don't I just handle all of the finances too and make sure everything's taken care of? So then he was at some sort of meeting where you have to pay dues and they were like, you haven't paid your dues in like six months. And so we have to kick you out of the club or whatever it was. It was some sort of association. And he's like, that's crazy. My wife, Marianne's been paying my dues. Like, she's in charge of paying all of our bills and everything. They're like, nope, we have not heard from her. And she owes us a lot of money. So he's like, what the hell? So he goes home and he finds out that they were deeply in debt. She had emptied his bank account. She hadn't paid their bills in months. She had then when she found out, he was like saying something about this like association that they owed all this money to. She had tried to go out and get a loan in the name of his uncle and his brother-in-law so that she could, like, pay off some loan to cover the money that she had stole. And he also found out that his eldest son, who was still living, was like, hey, by the way, your wife has been, like, asking me to take clothing, linens, and, like, smaller pieces of furniture from our house to the pawnbroker and bring her back the money. Wow. So James found all of this out after he was already on alert because she had been pushing him to get his life insured for a very significant sum. Telltale said. With James at the end of his rope, Marianne took off with baby George on New Year's Eve, 1869. So she went first to a friend's house in Sunderland and she told her friend, like, hey, things aren't going so great with my husband. I'm just going to stay here with the baby for a little while. Her friend was like, of course, whatever you have to do. And so the next morning, she's like, I'm just going to go out and post this letter. Do you mind watching the baby? He's just sleeping. I'm just going to go out and go to the post office. I'll be back soon. And she's like, okay. And then she never came back. Wow. <laughs> yes. Well, a strong maternal urge with this one. I mean, I guess we should just be glad that she didn't kill him. Oh, maybe she was like nipping out to get some more arsenic. She's like, ah, I ran out of arsenic. I don't have time to kill this one. Just got to go post this letter and pick up some arsenic. Yeah. So baby George was abandoned. And thankfully, somehow this friend got back in touch with James or one of his sisters, managed to track him down. And George ended up back with his father and his two remaining half-siblings, the ones who had survived their father being married to Marianne, which they were older. So I'm wondering if they were stronger or they were like, I'll get my own tea, thank you. I don't know how these two kids lived. So James Robinson would later say, I'm convinced that my children were poisoned. I suspected it at the time, but I did not want my mind to dwell on the subject. They were healthy and strong and only ill a few days before they died. Anytime she gave them anything, they vomited and were sick and purged. Oh, so sad. It's very sad, but I also feel like this might be either he ignored his instincts, his gut instinct here that told him that something was going wrong, or this is a more of like hindsight is 2020 thing because he still married her 
three and a half months after his children were dead. So you did not really believe that she poisoned them enough to not marry her and subject more children to her potentially murdering them. Yeah, exactly. You planted the seed that allowed that. Yeah. The big mystery, though, is what Marianne was doing with all this money. Nobody knows. She did not seem to have any sort of gambling issue. There weren't records of her having a drug issue. We have no idea what she was doing with all this money. Now, she did like nice clothes, nice things. But Martin Connolly, the author, brings up that he would have known if there was like a lot, like all of a sudden she has like this fancy designer clothes like wardrobe in her closet. He would have known because he would have been like, wait a minute, where did all that stuff come from? So we don't know, although I'm still in the back of my head thinking that maybe she's stashing stuff with her lover. Maybe she's taking care of him. Maybe she's paying for another apartment that he's living in near them at this point. And the other thing is, it doesn't make any sense why she would throw this all away. This is the best dude that she has found, at least financially. We don't know if there's anything else going on in the relationship that could have been potentially harmful. Who knows? I mean, this is the 1800s. I think probably everyone's beaten everybody. These kids, it's just called discipline back then. I'm sure there was some level of abuse on some level. But as far as financially, this is the best she's ever done. So why is she throwing it away? Why was she risking it to just steal all of his stuff and take his furniture to the pawnbrokers? I think she probably liked killing all these poor children. You think she liked it? It wasn't just like for money. Mm -mm. She's just a sick fuck. Mm-hmm. That's what David Wilson thinks, too. There's all these historians who are like, she's a woman of her time. Her back was against a wall. And, you know, it was hard to be heard. It was hard to live in this time. And she was just trying to figure out how to make ends meet. And David Wilson's like, she's a fucking psychopath. She's a, like a freaking psychopath killer. I'm in that camp. Yeah. I thought you might be, to be honest. I was like, I'm leaning there too. There was like a couple of things I read that they were being a little too sympathetic to her. And I was like, okay, okay. We can say like, oh, maybe she only murdered 10 out of the 21 she was accused of. That's still 10 too many. So maybe it's this lover. This Maybe that's where the money is going. But lover aside, Marianne was once again in the market for a new man. So she ended up connecting with a friend she worked with named Margaret Cotton. And I guess the two women at this point in life were working as laundry maids. And Margaret was talking to her new friend and said that actually she had a widowed brother who was in need of help. And Margaret was actually going to be moving in with him because his wife had just died and she had to help him care for his children. And Marianne goes, oh, really? She's like, that's just my speed. I love a guy who just lost his wife and is in a vulnerable position. Perfect. Perfect. That sounds like just my style. So she's like, wouldn't it be fun when you move in? If I come to visit for a little bit, just to see my old friend, maybe I can help you out. It'll be great. So Marianne did come for a visit. Frederick Cotton's daughter. So this is Frederick, the widower. And his daughter died of typhus on January 29th, 1870. Within three months, no, the child's aunt, Mary Ann's friend, Margaret, who had invited her into the home, was also dead 
of an unknown stomach ailment. Oh, God. Well, for Marianne, the best way to get into a man's heart was to be a great comfort to him in his time of grief. So it seems like murdering his sister and his little daughter led him right into Marianne's bed because she and Frederick welcomed a baby boy named Robert in early February of 1871. So they had likely conceived only a couple months after Margaret's death. So now I feel like, think about it, the baby boy died on the day after she got in the home and really quickly she snapped him up. So she's like, hmm, got to kill a kid as soon as I get here. Obviously, that's the way. And then maybe Margaret was suspecting something. Yeah. But I also read that she had 60 pounds in her savings that poof, disappeared when she died. Hmm. Hmm. Well, Frederick and Marianne wed in September of 1870. So again, she was four or five months pregnant when they got married. Technically, this one was bigamy as she was not divorced from her still very much alive husband, James Robinson. Wow. Who is, to our knowledge, the only survivor of marrying Marianne. Sorry to spoil the fact that Sir Frederick Cotton here isn't going to be surviving. What? (laughs) What? Well, now, this was all going on. Marianne also had a job as a domestic servant for a doctor, and apparently she knew that she was going to get fired as soon as her pregnancy was revealed, which, again, the time sucked. Like, we're not saying that life did not suck for Marianne. We're saying that it was brutal and terrible, but it's still no excuse for murdering helpless, innocent children. Never. Never. So she was basically, I think she told her husband this too. Is like, I'm going to get fired. So I'm just going to start stealing things from the doctor's home and office. So reports say that the doctor eventually confronted Marianne and eventually she and a groom were fired, though the police were never actually called. It was kind of like one of those things where we're just going to let you leave with your life. Off the hook. Yeah. Author Martin Connolly suggested that Marianne might have been in collusion with the groom, and this groom could have possibly been the real father of the baby that she passed off as Frederick Cotton's. Wow. Who knows? But what we do know for sure is that Marianne had lots and lots of access to arsenic and other poisons while working at this doctor's house. So now she's moved to husband number four, Frederick Cotton. And once again, the neighbors really don't like her. So she's got new neighbors. She keeps moving around. But these new neighbors don't like her either. Like she moves in. One of the kids dies. Then Margaret dies. Then she's getting married out of wedlock. And everybody could see how big that belly was when she was finally getting married. So we don't know. They could just be judgy cunts who are like, we know you were pregnant and you were sleeping with him. Or they could be like, neighborly sleuths were like, is she killing those people? Either way, they didn't like her. Let's imagine it's the latter. Yes. And Marianne convinced her new husband to move to West Auckland to start fresh. At this point, they were living with two sons of Frederick's from his previous marriage. Okay. And then they had their baby, who may or may not have actually been Frederick's, but the baby boy, Robert. So coincidentally, Marianne's rumored lover for all of this time, Joseph Natras, 
had also recently moved to West Auckland. What are the odds? Huh. And then in September of 1871, only about seven months after the baby had been born, 39-year-old, previously healthy, Frederick Cotton fell ill and died. Oh, no. Yes, also, this happened after Joseph Natris's wife. So he had a wife at some point in this to the lover, and she died, too, around this time. So I don't know if she was friendly with her husband's lover, but I would be looking into that one if I was a detective. I'll just say that much. (laughs) Now, at this point, the West Auckland community didn't really know anything about her. They were not as suspicious of her as his old community had been. So they had basically just moved in. So they'd only known her as like a loving wife and mother who now had tragically lost her husband. However, tongues did start wagging when she had a man move in with her only a couple months after her husband's death. A man named Joseph Natras. (laughs) So it wasn't uncommon, obviously, in this time for people to have lodgers. Like there was a lot of landladies that could not afford their whole rent and somebody would let a room. So that's not crazy. But tongues were wagging because they were very affectionate with one another. So it's one thing to let a room or to have a lodger. It's another thing to be handsy with your lodger. Yeah, I'd say. Well, Doom certainly seemed to follow Marianne because in March of 1872, Frederick's eldest son, Frederick Jr., died. And only two weeks later, her baby, Robert Cotton, also died of, quote, teething convulsions. So Marianne received insurance payouts for all of these deaths uh, and a pretty hefty one for Frederick's. And at this point, obviously, the coal company had made some steps in their own (laughs) progression because they didn't kick her out. So her husband, Frederick Cotton, had also worked for the coal company. And they said, you just stay in that cottage as long as you need to. We're not going to kick you out because you've suffered the loss of your husband and now your stepson and now your baby. You just like, you just stay there. It's fine. So she's doing pretty well. She's got all that insurance money. She figured it out. She's reportedly getting money from her lover, even though we don't know if she was actually getting any rent money from him. And she's down to one stepson, Charles Cotton, and her live-in lover, Joseph Natras. But there's a problem. Marianne is done with Joseph after all these years. I was wondering if that time would come. Yes. She wants to move on with a patient of hers named John Quick Manning, who she had treated, I guess she was working in some sort of medical capacity again, and he was recovering from smallpox. And this guy was an excise officer, which I did have to look up. And it seems like at the time that this was going on, it was somebody who enforced duties and taxes and apparently made a much better living than this layabout, Joseph Natras, which I don't even know what he was doing with his life. And Marianne decided that it was time to clean house once more, start fresh. And Joseph Natras fell suddenly ill and died in Marianne's house in April, only weeks after the little cotton boy and the baby had died. So sad. Yeah, they actually said that in like the death like roles where they wrote like the people who died in the area down. It was literally like the young boy, then the baby, and then Joseph Natras. So sad. 
Well, luckily for Marianne, Joseph had recently revised his will to leave her everything. So she cashed in on 45 pounds, which is about 7,800 pounds in today's money. Now, Marianne does not kill her last stepson, Charles. She instead marches him down to the workhouse and tries to commit him, which was, remember we talked about workhouses before, I think in a prior episode. Yep. The overseer, Thomas Riley, said no. He's like, we don't have room. You can't just like give away your stepson because you don't want him anymore. You can take care of him. You're going to have to turn around and take your stepson back. How old was he at that time? He was, I think, nine years old. Jeez Louise. Yeah, somewhere between like a seven, nine-year-old, that age range. And Marianne repeatedly turned to Thomas Riley and said, oh, well, I won't be troubled long. He'll go like all of the rest of the cottons. Yeah, I mean... They have to realize that that's the other option. Yeah. So Thomas Riley thought that was a very weird thing to say because he was like right there in front of the boy and he looked extremely healthy. So he's like, that's a weird thing to say. Like, I know everyone just died in your family because everyone knew everyone in this village. But like, that's strange. That's a really strange thing to say because he's definitely healthy. And voila, five days later, the poor kid was dead. Yeah, that's on them. Yeah, when Thomas Riley found out about the death, he went straight to the police Good. and demanded that an autopsy be held. Because he's like, this was weird. I thought it was weird when she said it. And then that kid was totally fine. And now five days later, he's dead. And Marianne wasn't doing herself any favors here, too, because she didn't even report it to the police right away. She went to the insurance office and then popped over to the police. Here, I don't know if you uh, saw, but I have my uh, stepson in this burlap bag. <laughs> All traces back to her dad. It really is. It's the trauma of the early death of her father made her a killing machine. So they ended up holding the autopsy in Marianne's house, laying the boy out on her kitchen table. Samples were taken from the stomach of the boy and later were proven to have evidence of arsenic in them. And this was a big technological advance. Like this was them... Very early forensic work of figuring out how compounds are reacting to compounds and like what this looks like. This was very exciting new technology at this point, but there definitely was arsenic in the child's body and system. But later, her attorney is going to say it's because she had that fashionable green wallpaper. And it's entirely possible because they were doing the autopsy in her kitchen that some of the wallpaper could have flaked off and contaminated the samples that were taken from the child's stomach region. Jumped off the wall into his stomach. That's how crazy poisonous arsenic is. It'll jump right off the wall and get right up in your business. But that doesn't really explain why arsenic was also found in the bodies of Joseph Natras, Robert, the baby cotton, and Frederick Cotton Jr. when they were exhumed. Although this is really freaking weird. They couldn't find Frederick Sr. Like he wasn't where he was supposed to be when they went to dig up all the bodies. Huh. <laughs> yeah, that's just a really creepy touch. It's like, I don't know. We just lost one. It's like, what do you mean? Isn't there's not a gravestone? What are we working with here that you just lost a body in a cemetery? So they managed to find a lover and two of the children. And they definitely had arsenic in their bodies as well. They could not find her fourth husband for some reason. I mean, maybe he was of like, I mean, he wasn't of that high social standing, but maybe a grave rotter had already like been at it or something. 
And I mean, the obvious answer is he's a zombie. So in any case, Marianne was absolutely arrested. She was charged with, I believe, the murders of all four of these individuals. However, the trial was mostly focused on her stepson, Charles Cotton, because that was the easiest one to win because of Thomas Riley being a witness to that conversation. And the autopsy and everything, right? Yes. And the autopsy and it had just occurred. And I think that with the technology being as new as it was and the other bodies being a little bit more deteriorated, it seemed like they were focusing on Charles Cotton, the stepson. So she pleaded her innocence. Marianne claimed that she had taken the child to the pharmacy and she had requested arrowroot powder to treat his illness. And the clerk must have mistakenly given her arsenic instead because they were just like next to each other in the store. Totally. She also claimed that Thomas Riley, her accuser, was just being a dick because she had turned down his advances. Oh. I don't know. Didn't sound like Marianne was turning down many advances in those days. In fact, she had one last little surprise for the jailers, the court, and the newspapers. While she stood accused of killing 11 out of 12 of her children, she announced that she was carrying lucky number 13. Marianne, at 40 years old, was pregnant again. Wow, that's shock. The press was going wild for this story. And there was both sides of it, too, because now that she was pregnant and then after she had the baby, then it was like she was sympathetic because they were they, she had this beautiful baby. And they were like, oh, are we going to really put her on trial and maybe murder this woman that has this tiny little baby she's taking care of? So this was huge, huge news. While the baby could have belonged to either of her lovers, Joseph Natras or John Quick Manning, she chose to say that the latter was the daddy, a.k.a. the one she hadn't murdered. On January 7th, 1873, Marianne's 13th and final child was born. It was a girl. And do you want to guess what she named her? Margaret. <laughs> it was Margaret. <laughs> Which was also the name of her mother who was murdered. <laughs> weird. So many Margarets. Just going to name this episode. The murder of so many Margarets. Margaret was the sister of Cotton, too, that she killed, right? Yes. Yes. Oh, my gosh. There's just so many murdered Margarets in this story. So Margaret Edith Quick Manning Cotton was born in jail, and Marianne was allowed to nurse and care for the infant throughout her incarceration. She also wrote letters to the newspaper proclaiming her innocence. But alas, when they looked into the sheer number of husbands, children, stepchildren, a friend, a lover, a mother that had all died while in her care, public opinion had pretty much been made up. Marianne's trial lasted three days and, to be honest, would definitely not have held up today because public opinion was very much against her. And I do not think that they were making sure that the jury was unfamiliar with her case. So definitely we're coming in with a prejudiced group of jurors. She was also appointed a very last-minute replacement defense attorney who did his best but was horribly underprepared for the trial. And in general, the evidence against Marianne was pretty circumstantial. Everyone around her died, and yeah, they might have found arsenic in her stepson's body, but could have come from the kitchen wallpaper or wherever because apparently arsenic was everywhere these days. 
But, of course, none of this mattered to the jury, nor did it matter to 1800s Victorian Englanders or the judge or anyone in this case. They all were like, she's guilty. And the judge sentenced Marianne to death by hanging, saying the following. It only remains for me to pass upon you the awful sentence of the law, which is for you to be taken from hence to the place of execution and that you be there hanged by the neck until you shall be dead and that your body be afterwards buried within the precincts of the prison in which you shall have last been confined after your conviction. May the Lord have mercy on your soul. Wow, that is so British. (laughs) It is. My accent was going in and out there. It was mostly American. It was arranged that a neighbor family from West Auckland would adopt the baby, the surviving Margaret. Oh, good. Yes, and she lived. And, you know, I think it wasn't an easy life, but at some point she lived out in California. She was like, she married a man and moved all the way out to California. They, They did some sort of transport business together. They had two sons. But then after he died, she moved back to England. And then sadly, I think both of her sons died in the First World War. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So not an easy life, but she wasn't murdered as a child by her mother. So that's good. She at least got to live to have a husband and travel and see the world and have two babies. So Margaret survived. She is the surviving Margaret, the only one that lived, the Margaret who lived. Marianne willingly handed over the infant, but she did say to the family, if they put a rope around my neck, it will not matter. I never murdered him. I am as innocent as that bairn there, pointing to the baby Margaret. But I don't know, said four other dead Margarets or maybe more. Yep. I think it's five dead Margarets. It's like three baby Margarets and then her friend and her mom. Yep. So there's like a chorus of dead Margarets being like, I don't know when she says that, like up in heaven. And so it was so that Marianne Robson, Mowbray Ward Robinson Cotton, was executed on March 24th of 1873, and it was a spectacle right till the end. Marianne did not have a last meal, just a cup of tea. That is really, really telling. It is. And at 8 a.m., she was paraded out before a booing crowd She prayed loudly throughout her death march, and her last words were, Lord, have mercy on my soul. The hanging was botched. Yikes. Because apparently the drop was not long enough to actually break her neck, and the hangman had to, like, basically get up and, like, push down her shoulders. And then she, like, twitched for three minutes, and they believe she then passed away. But it was also suspected that maybe they botched it on purpose because this was a sadistic hangman who liked to cause pain to the people he executed. Okay, that's weird. Very weird. Marianne was survived by one ex-husband, or I guess still husband because they never got divorced, James Robinson, their son, George, and little Margaret the fourth. Those were the only three people that survived being in close proximity to this woman. Did Marianne kill 21 people? Probably not. Did she kill some or even most of them? I would say so. Even in a time with rampant illness, poor hygiene, and terrible life expectancy, having this many people die around you seems pretty extraordinary. 
And the fact that then they dug them up and they all had arsenic in their bellies. All signs point to yes. Yes. If she had not made that comment to Thomas Riley, the workhouse manager, she would have gotten away with killing for far longer. I believe she would have continued to go on meeting people, although I guess her fertility was slowing down, but not by much because she was still pregnant at 40. So this was the question, and you kind of already answered it, was I was wondering, why did she kill? Now, this is something that some scholars now say, well, there was no way to advance in her situation. She had no power. This was something that gave her a sense of power. She was literally in control of whether these people lived or died. And it gave her money because it gave her the paydays through the life insurance policies, which was a relatively new occurrence that common folk could apply and get life insurance for their loved ones. So there's that. And then there's also, I wonder, given that it's so many people in her care, if there's like just a dash of Munchausen by proxy there too. I think she just liked killing people. Yeah. And that's basically where David Wilson, the criminologist, landed because he brought up a witness at Marianne's trial who saw Joseph Natras twisted and great convulsions of pain. And we've talked about it before, I believe in, um, oh gosh, I can't remember which episode, but if you have severe arsenic poisoning, actually like you can't control your limbs, you're having spasms and your hands and your feet like curl up and spasm involuntarily. And so this neighbor was witnessing it, and she said that it was very aggressive, very painful. It was hard to look upon and seeing how much pain he was in, and that Marianne was holding him down. Like, she was, like, pushing him down, and she was doing so ostensibly so he stayed in the bed because he was spasming so hard. And David Wilson wrote, it is hard not to believe that there was some element of enjoyment at the control she exercised. That she was, in other words, a psychopath. I believe she would have enjoyed holding down Natris as he died in miserable agony. So that is the story, guys, of Marianne Cotton, Britain's first female serial killer. What a psychopath. I do have a Wikipedia fun fact. Wikipedia fun fact. Okay, so there's a horrifying little nursery rhyme that is about Marianne Cotton. And I do not think that this is the correct rhythm cadence or how it's supposed to be read but it reads marianne cotton she's dead and she's rotten lying in bed with her eyes wide open sing sing oh what should i sing marianne cotton she's tied up with string where where up in the air selling black puddings a penny a pair gross gross do you know what a black pudding is no. It's a type of blood sausage. Oh, yeah. I've tried that in Bavaria. It's disgusting. <laughs> it's like I looked it up because I wanted to be able to tell you what it was. And I was like, I like still occasionally like eat red meat from time to time. And I was like, and I grew up on a farm. But I was like, that's too much for me. It's like either pork or beef blood mixed with pork or beef fat. And then they're like, oh, and then we throw like a little oats or maybe some barley meal in. It's so delicious. In like a jar. It's disgusting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah, this one's, it's really interesting. In conclusion, if your name is Margaret, be careful. Be careful for 19th century 
serial killers. And be careful of never eating blood sausage. (laughs) (laughs) And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so your fourth husband doesn't die of arsenic poisoning. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye.